The creation of a farmer's own seed has been de rigueur for thousands of years. Every harvest, some allotment of the harvest was set aside to provide seeds for next year's crops. Sometimes it was also traded with other farmers. These farmers took the seed, planted it, grew food plus more seed, and repeated this cycle every year. For anyone who spends much time in the soil growing things, seeds are inspiring and security and revolution. In Shaping Fire episode 33, I talked with Reggie Gaudino about cannabis plant patents, and he was emphatic that the best hope for heritage farmers to preserve their rights to their own genetics was for them to defensively patent their chemovars in order to prove that their genetic expressions were already in the market and could not be usurped by an overbroad patent by someone else. But those defensive patents could end up costing several grand each to do the short or long read of the genome and then filing the patent. But there are now cooperative communities popping up across the U.S. like Jerry Whiting's Cannabis Breeders' Rights Project in Seattle and the Open Cannabis Project in Portland to generate breeders' rights agreements and public licenses for the use of cannabis genetics in the hope of defending heritage farmers, help the new breeders monetize their work fairly, and keep the gene pool alive and accessible for everyone to benefit and experiment. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you the new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates and make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away really cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter, too. This month, we're giving away retail-sized bottles of Mammoth Pea Microbe Inoculant from Mammoth Microbes. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Alan, founder of the cannabis genetics trading website called Strainly. He's the first guest I've had on the show to do so anonymously. Alan is Canadian, and U.S. Border Control is giving blanket life bans from the U.S. for Canadians working in their own Canadian cannabis industry. It's totally embarrassing that our country is doing that to Canadians, so it's the least that we can do to let Alan appear on the show today, sans last name, so he can more easily come over the border to visit. Allen's company, Strainly, is an online community of cannabis seed breeders, collectors, and traders. We're going to talk about Strainly during the third set today, but I invited Allen to come on the show to talk about peer-to-peer seed trading and bring us up to speed on Creative Commons-styled cannabis chemovar patents. You know these Creative Commons trademarks. These are the less formal trademarks that are not through the government and are essentially unilateral, but they consist of a variety of symbols to communicate what protected material you can use for fun, but not for money, if you can use it, but not make any changes to it, or if you can do whatever you want with it, so long as you give a a attribution. There are several other combinations of attributes, too. You're about to start hearing a whole lot about this sort of community-oriented yet legally enforceable patent process. And today we're going to give you the context you want to understand the process and maybe get involved. Welcome to the show, Alan. 
Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yes, fabulous. So, so before we get into the, the the heavy lifting during the second two parts of the show on cannabis genetics licensing and your own project at Strainly, let's start by talking a little bit about person to person cannabis, um, how it's how it's always been with both cannabis and seeds. So, so historically, you know, uh, farmers of all kinds um, have been able to share seeds with each other however they wanted. Um, but one of the things that's gotten all of our attention in cannabis with both the, the trading back and forth of flowers originally, uh, but now with the trading back and forth of seeds, is is the idea that some of these uh, overbroad corporate IP patents on cannabis are, are going to start to pull away some of the availability of chemovars that that we have been using for the you know for the last forty years or whatever to grow cannabis. I know that this is a big concern of yours. Would you uh, uh, kind of give us a perspective of yours of what you are seeing happening now that is restricting uh, potentially the use of cannabis genetics in the future by cannabis growers now? Yeah, and uh, as you as you uh, perfectly described, uh, you know, we've uh, historically, despite uh, prohibition, I think we've uh, historically had a, a decent of of, uh, of varietals and uh, in in cannabis and uh, uh, through Europe, uh, in the U.S. and um, and despite the, uh, the the prohibition, and I think you know the, the underground nature of uh, cannabis growing maybe helped with you know the collaboration because people had to help each other uh, basically. But now you know with legalization, ironically, um, there are some more um, uh, bigger bigger interests, bigger entities, uh, well-funded uh, corporations that are uh, like uh, in the with the same uh, approach that uh, they did after the World War II. Uh, with uh, regular crops, uh, with uh, corn, with uh, tomatoes, uh, you name it, uh, they are probably going to try to uh, acquire uh, uh, cannabis genetics, uh, acquire exclusive rights over some cannabis genetics through patents. And and my concern is that it could you know really reduce uh, the biodiversity eventually um, uh, because there is so much uh, varietals that you can protect uh, as it takes a lot of resources, a lot of money, and um, and so it would be to me it would be a, a loss for uh, for human beings basically and the the, the cannabis cannabinoids uh, combinations and terpene combinations are have uh, a lot of benefits uh, for 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 us and uh, and the more combinations we have access to the better in my opinion for patients and consumers so uh, that's where my concern is mainly I think it's really interesting that we've kind of come back to this idea of P2P cannabis. And and for people who are new to that idea, P2P stands for person to person. And if you think yeah. back into the early days of music sharing online for people who yeah. remember Nap Napster, this was kind of the idea. The idea was, all right, well, we don't really care for the way that that uh, you know, copyrights are are be, were, were being done at that time. And a lot of people just wanted free music. Uh, yeah. but what they said is like, okay, let's set up a decentralized way to be able to trade music back and forth and uh, things like Napster and LimeWire were born so that people could trade person to person and skip the record store 
And, and, and so that's the funny thing is that's also how traditionally cannabis was done because of prohibition. Uh, you know, uh, cannabis people were, were, uh, growing stuff themselves and then, you know, selling small lots of it to their neighbors. And the same thing was happening with cannabis seeds. Uh, there were, you know, connections originally through the mail and then eventually through the internet and, and, and breeders were able to share with each other their seeds without any kind of, uh, concern of, of of patenting or a corporation owning it and and everybody could do that freely well now we you know if for for folks who have listened to my show with uh, uh, Reggie Godino on, mm-hmm. on on defensive patents of cannabis we're finding more and more folks who are are trying to set up these overbroad patents that will um, you know usurp a lot of this a lot of this work that was done by early breeders so I'm curious Alan you know looking at it like this, uh, it, it, does it seem peculiar to you that you know what was always the case with P to P cannabis is now suddenly kind of becoming in vogue again as a defense against corporations? Yeah, I think you know if if you ask me, you know the the, the very nature of uh, of uh, cannabis genetics, it's uh, it's really in the public domain. If you ask me, I mean, uh, if you. Uh, if, if you look at the way they were uh, distributed and made available, uh, uh, there are uh, a variety of, of genetics that are, to me are very uh, are not eligible for patenting because they've been in the public domain. They've been accessible for many years before. So if you start breeding from those uh, genetics and you want to put a patent on them, to me, that should be challengeable. Uh, uh, but uh, we have examples in the past where you know some some corporations put patents uh, on some uh, varieties of fruits or grains. Uh, they had bred based on some uh, starting material that were in the public domain before, and those patents were granted, and they are still in. A- so we can't really, in my opinion, you know, expect the, the system, if I may say, to protect biodiversity because we've got examples of. Uh, a reduced biodiversity in the regular uh, agricultural world, uh, if if I can say, and and it could it could easily be uh, become the same uh, with with cannabis. So uh, you know this peer to peer exchange uh, of seeds in cannabis is probably threatened. Uh, this practice can be uh, could be threatened with legalization. And if we act now, maybe we have a chance to preserve it and to maintain it as the uh, the common model, the the, the dominant model, as opposed to uh, a challenging model that's coming, which is patent driven uh, breeding and uh, and exclusive rights over a, a smaller variety of of of, uh, of strains, basically. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting uh, earlier last year was when uh, uh, Vermont legalized mm-hmm. cannabis, but they did it for a while without stores. And that was like a really beautiful P2P play right there, because essentially Vermont yep. was saying, like, we know you're growing flour and we know you're making products and we know you're growing seeds and selling it. And we don't have really figured out how to have our own stores yet. We're going to get right on that. But in the interim, we're just going to legalize it so that people are no longer going to be going to jail for having cannabis. And 
in the yep. meantime, you guys just kind of take care of each other, right? And yep. for for most of us in the United States, we were all like, "Hell yeah, Vermont! Like that's fantastic." They're they're uh, trusting their um, citizens to 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 grow the plant, produce the seeds, share with each other in a, in a way that's healthy and that you know is in a healthy environment. Um, similarly, I think it's interesting how technology has has helped with that because anybody who's spent any amount of time you know really digging deep into Instagram can find there are tons of seed providers and flower providers yeah. who are outside of the regulated market but because of the technology um, is is providing uh, the, the technology is providing a platform for these people to get in contact with each other so from where you sit as a founder of strainly and we'll talk a lot more about strainly during the third part of the show I want to hear yeah. a little bit about from you though about how you find the modern technology is helping support peer-to-peer -peer trading of cannabis you know I'm the, I mean that's a that's an interesting question I think you know I'm a big believer of uh, a more uh, horizontal type of economy where you know you have the smaller players and everybody is able to make a living I think you know we've observed uh, generally not only in cannabis but generally uh, over over the past decades, uh, a, a, an important concentration of industries, of business actors in many industries, and a concentration of wealth, and uh, and and a lot of people, you know, uh, um, uh, didn't have any opportunity left to make a living, right? And uh, and that happened a lot in, in in the agricultural world. A lot of farmers uh, are, um, you know, facing big challenges and, and difficulties in, in, in uh, uh, you know, being profitable and leaving from what they love doing. And it's really frustrating for them because it's their whole life. And, uh, and they have, you know, sometimes to quit and they recommend their, their, uh, their children not to take over the farm, etc. So I think, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of technology to sort of rebalance a little bit the way our economy works in order to uh, have a, a less vertical integration of industries and a more horizontal distribution of the value that's produced along the, 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 the value chain, if you wish. And that's, that's uh, valid for cannabis where, you know, um, a, a lot of small craft growers uh, uh, would make a, a very vibrant industry and at the same time uh, empower uh, rural communities with some uh, streams of revenue in, in a legal uh, and technology by connecting everybody together and, and creating that network to support each other and collaborate is, is a very powerful thing that we didn't have uh, easily available on the you know fifteen years ago. So, you know, um, a lot of people who are going after IP are, are, are think that that's really the only way that you can can make money, right? They're all like, well, I have to own this this product category in order for it to have value. And, and I am a big fan of the the uh, preface to Ed Rosenthal's famous growing book mm -hmm. where he uh, compares cannabis to tomatoes. And what he essentially says is, you know, uh, everybody grows tomatoes in their garden during the summertime and they eat those tomatoes and, and they share them with your neighbors and they're delicious, right? But, but really, yep. we only have those tomatoes for a little while from our little garden for the summer and the the entire rest of the year um we're getting 
tomatoes from the store. And even, even so, during the summer, we may have tomatoes in our garden, but they might be the wrong kind of tomato. And so yep. we're still going to go to the market and buy Roma tomatoes for something or other. And I think that's a pretty good model for cannabis as well, because you know, even if um, of, of, if cannabis is, is freely available from your neighbor and you're trading flowers and you're trading seeds and all of this is going uh, back and forth, there's still a call for companies to be selling their seeds um, because they've got different value attributes. Maybe they've got a more aggressive breeding program and so they are breeding for particular uh, types of patient relief or maybe they are, 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 are making specialty seeds that are feminized and autoflower for patients, whatever it, the case is. But yeah. I, I've always believed that there's room for both, right? There's there's room yes. for these companies to to create unique products and to, um, you know, have value in those products without having to get um, intellectual property rights on the entirety of cannabis. Okay. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, uh, you know, you, you first, you know, I think we've got a acknowledge that uh you know with the legalization of cannabis we're gonna have it it's gonna look a little bit probably like the alcohol industry where you're gonna have you know some molson cores heineken corona you know large corporations and you know once in a while yeah i drink a corona but uh you know sometimes like last night i had a, a microbrewery beer and uh and i like that you know being able to support some small craft brewers from vermont from quebec from ontario whatever and you know it's a uh, it's also a special feeling, you know, having knowing that, you know, by just enjoying this product, you're also supporting someone who is your in your community. But at the same time, uh, we we can't prevent uh, larger corporations from offering their products. So they're going to have to be a room for everyone, and they're going to have, you know, the, the craft cannabis and the more larger scale produce cannabis for sure. What is some types of uh, mechanisms to avoid having the bigger uh, uh, producers, uh, the, the well-funded and resourceful producers to sort of uh, <clears throat> eradicate the small ones uh, just because the small ones can't compete and, and can't survive in, in a market uh, that's controlled by the big ones. And I think, you know, uh, uh, the open source uh, licenses uh, is, is sort of a create sort of a, a sort of a safe haven for uh, this scope of genetics that remains protected and freely accessible for the smaller uh, people who can't afford uh, the, the patented genetics or don't have access to them, uh, uh, simply don't have access to them because they are uh, not made available. Right. And, uh, and, and so for the two to coexist, we need to have a framework for the open source side. Excellent. So I think that we, I think we've got a, the the, philosoph the philosophical underpinnings for what we're trying to do today um, locked down. We're we're not looking to uh, uh, degrade the value of people who want to bring seeds to market. What we want to do is create the a market which is open to everyone and does not uh, go down the the road of Monsanto buyer where where you w can't use seeds that you have simply because. Uh, somebody else happens to own that IP through, yes. uh, through creative legal ways. So, so, so thanks you for that, Alan. Let's go ahead and, and take our first break. So stick with us during the second part of the show. Uh, that's going to be our biggest set. We're going to get in depth talking about uh, collaborative commons and the open source seed initiative. Uh, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Alan, founder at Strainly. 
Living soil and regenerative cannabis agriculture are surging in popularity, and to implement these biological solutions, real science education is vital. If you are interested in all things probiotic growing, you will probably want to attend the upcoming Science of Organic Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conference. Joshua Rutherford of Dutch Blooms has lined up an incredible array of educators for the traveling event. The teaching staff includes Leighton Morrison and Elaine Ingham on soil biology, Chris Trump talking Korean natural farming, Kevin Jodry on cannabis genetics, Kelly and Josh from Dragonfly Earth Medicine, Suzanne Wainwright, the bug lady, Dr. Robert Faust on natural biostimulants, Stephen Raisner on aquaponics, and Chip Osborne on soil testing, and even more folks will be there. There will be a grower panel, a breeding panel, and a DEM certified farmers panel. Joshua has even built in significant informal time for you with the teachers as well. The teaching staff is just as excited to work with you as you are about attending. And there's no advertising at the event, no vendor booths. Your tuition is what is paying the staff, so they will all be very present and attentive to you, not a corporate sponsor. Even better, the conference is not just for folks on the West Coast. Humboldt, California is hosting one event for sure, but the show is going on the road to Vancouver, British Columbia, Portland, Maine, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Get out your pen now because I'm about to give you the website. This is a fabulous opportunity for you to hear from an array of nationally recognized top-shelf soil educators all in one place. Not only that, this isn't just beginner stuff like you get at most conventions. This is an intensive for people like us who totally nerd out on the rhizosphere. The website is regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. That's regenerativeorganiccannabis.com. You can also find a link on the Shaping Fire Instagram and newsletter. Cut through all the misinformation out there and don't miss this opportunity to learn real soil science. As a listener of Shaping Fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea.
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Alan, founder at Strainly. So during the first set, we kind of gave you the philosophical underpinnings of what we want to talk about today, which is essentially providing a legal defense for cannabis uh, enthusiasts and breeders to be able to use the seeds that they are growing, uh, regardless of uh, any sort of overbroad patent uh, that may uh, developed through the U.S. Patent and Trade Office. So, so Alan, let's start at the beginning. I know that this is uh, this is an area where you are exceptionally deep. So, so let's start with uh, the basis of 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 people's patents. Would you explain a bit about the uh, Lawrence Lessig's Creative Commons and and how that can provide an uh, uh, ideological basis for for uh, common person patents? Sure. So. You know, when you, when you, generally speaking, you know, when you invent something, and you know, in this case, if you create a new uh, a varietal of cannabis through a, a, your breeding project, you, you, you have two ways. Uh, you may say, you know, it's free for everyone to use and propagate and reuse for breeding something else, or you know, on the contrary, I want to, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of acquire a, a monopole on, on on my creation for a period of time to reap. Uh, the most benefits uh, from my efforts uh, in creating this new uh, strain. And so this is where you start applying for patents, for plant patents. There are different criteria. You know, maybe I'm not going to go into the details of uh, the, the criteria uh, uh, you need to, uh, to meet in order to be patent eligible. Uh, we, we, we detail them on, on the blog on Strainly. Uh, but uh, uh, if, if your uh, uh, new creation, your uh, uh, newly bred uh, strain uh, is eligible, you could acquire a patent on them. But it, you know, it's a, it's a time-consuming and money-consuming process. And once you get your patent, it's only um, uh, sort of a, a right to defend uh, uh, your your patent, and you know it's not because you have a patent on something you, you created that that it prevents uh, uh, automatically anyone from violating this patent. So if someone violates this patent, then you need to engage and spend more money with lawyers, IP agents, and everything to enforce your patent. So that's why you know I think the the, the concept of applying for plant patents is not accessible to everyone first because it takes resources to get it and then it takes even more resources to enforce it so for the small players it's really not really sustainable and uh, um, so so you know there are a, a different approaches you know making it freely available and uh, you mentioned you know the concept of a collaborative comments so uh, the collaborative uh, uh, um, uh, comments uh, are, it's a concept of uh, you know really uh, horizontal economy where uh, people uh, uh, create something in uh, in a collaborative approach. And a very uh, popular example of this is open source software, where you know uh, developers would uh, collaboratively create a piece of software by coding, because you know uh, uh, coding a piece of software on your own can be uh, very challenging, and you need a second pair of eyes or, or, or a third pair of eyes to to check if the code is clean and everything. And so, uh, this uh, uh, popular concept of open source uh, in software. Uh, is not necessarily limited to software. You can apply it to uh, different uh, um, uh, areas of creation, generally speaking. Some people would uh, uh, release their photos, their music 
under an open, open source license. And uh, uh, we came across a license in Germany, uh, which is the uh, uh, open source seed license, uh, which has this very purpose, uh, where uh, they created a license for uh, breeders of tomatoes, of fruits, of uh, vegetables to release their seeds uh, under this open source license for anyone else to freely propagate and reuse for rebreeding some other tomatoes or other uh, vegetables. And uh, and uh, when we came across this, we called the guys uh, the nonprofit in in Germany, and uh, they were super happy to share. Uh, their uh, license because the license itself had been released under a CC, a collaborative commons license, meaning that you could use the license itself and repurpose it for any other type of, uh, of uh, use. Uh, but give by but uh, uh, the condition is you need to give them credit, and so uh, uh, they re encourage uh, uh, encourage me to use it for uh, the uh, cannabis uh, uh, open source breeding, and uh, and this is how we came with uh, with this draft uh, of of the uh, open cannabis uh, license, um, and uh, and hopefully uh, that could be used by by many growers. So um, I, have a, I have a question before we continue on. I, yeah. and I also think that it's not sure. lost on me how darling it is that the the license or the uh, the, the the license uh, text for yeah. open source seeds is open source itself. I love that. Yeah. Um, so yeah. so these these collaborative licenses though, whether it be Lessig's Creative Commons or the Open Seed Open Source Seed Initiative in Germany, where do these these open source licenses get their teeth, right? Because one of the big difficult parts of a traditional US patent office uh, patent license is you have to spend all this money to defend it. So how did how did these licenses um, avoid that aspect of having to defend your license by throwing a ton of money at it. So uh, the, 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 um, the the open source seed license out of uh, the German uh, nonprofit is uh, is based on the German civil law, and in the German civil law there are some copyrights uh, uh, text uh, which allow uh, that recognize the copyleft. Uh, concept meaning that uh, you know as opposed to copyright uh, it's a copyleft concept where you know the creation is free of rights and available for anyone to use and that's recognized in the german civil law and that's recognized in the canadian uh, law as well uh, and you know that's recognized in most countries that recognize the concept of copyright they by you know uh, definition recognize the concept of copyleft as well so as soon as you formalize uh, uh, the, uh, that your creation is released under copyleft. Uh, um, if anyone would use your work, your creation, to acquire exclusive rights on them, on this creation down the road, uh, you could sue them. You could go to the German uh, court or to the Canadian court and say, hey, you know, this work has been released under a, a copyleft license, an open source license. You can't use it uh, to acquire exclusive rights on it. And so you would be eligible to uh, some compensations uh, um, uh, down the road if someone violates this license. What kind of interaction does do these uh, collaborative commons type licenses have with the USPTO? Like you said, okay, well, if you if you license your 
if you license your seeds, your cannabis yeah. seeds in the United States using the open source seed initiative based on Germany, your seeds mm -hmm. that appear in the United States will be protected by German courts. Well, um, it, are they protected by U.S. courts too? Would we? Be, would would does the USPTO, you know, give its blessing to Creative Commons type open licenses? So, you know, the license, uh, the, the, the open source seed license uh, in uh, the German one uh, is uh, the, the challenge that there is, you know, with, with the U.S. is uh, to uh, for the USPTO to see what are the seeds that are released under this license, uh, basically. And the USPTO would grant uh, a, a patent on something that has been created, even though if it's in the public domain, uh, if they don't have visibility or if it's open source, if they don't have visibility on this, on the open source nature uh, of, of, um, of the creation, they could grant a patent. And, uh, and this is why, you know, it's super important, like, you know, the Open Cannabis Project, they are creating a database to have, you know, some sort of public record for the USPTO to consult before delivering the patent on something that would not be eligible because of this of its open source nature or of its public domain nature and uh, and this is the, the main challenge that we have uh, today for uh, the the open source uh, uh, um, the open cannabis license uh, uh, to uh, be uh, most effective in the US it would have ideally to be uh, uh, slightly modified uh, to uh, no longer be enforceable under German civil law, but under uh, uh, state uh, laws. So ideally, this is why, you know, we reached out uh, um, uh, to uh, some uh, growers alliances and associations who are, which are non-profits. And I think it's an important uh, point in, in California, in Oregon, um, in, in uh, BC as well, in Canada to uh, uh, bring the, the license to their awareness and encourage them to release the license for the benefit of their members because they represent them as a non-profit. So it's a more democratic, more democratic approach, if you ask me. And also uh, uh, because, you know, if they sort of uh, uh, relocalize it to really fit into the California regulations, Oregon regulations, or a Canadian or a British Columbia regulations, it has... Uh, uh, a, a more um, a legal weight. So it's really important, uh, I think, to localize the license and to have different copies because it's a, a copyleft type of license that can be reused and repurposed and modified as long as you give credit to the one who, who created them in the first place, uh, the nonprofit in Germany. But I think it's important to localize uh, uh, those uh, licenses uh, in the different states to be more powerful and, and, uh, and uh, um, provide a better protection for the breeders who use uh, these uh, licenses. Right on. Good. Well said. And, you know, I think it's important for us to point out at this point for folks who are feeling a little disheartened because they thought they were going to listen to this episode today and have all the answers they need. Uh, this is not a topic that that we're probably all that close to having a solution for for American cannabis. This is about uh, participating in this discussion because up until now, yes. our, you know, up until now, the only discussion that we were having here in the United States really was how how do you get the money? 
money to do a long form read of your cannabis genome for the seeds that you are producing? And then how can you then uh, get an attorney to file with the patent and trade office to make that happen? That was the only conversation. It was very money centric. Whereas this, this new way that we're talking about it through, through copyleft and creative commons type licenses, the, the strategy is slightly different. Not only are we saying that this is going to evolve a lot, right? So get involved with the conversation if you are a breeder or a grower, or even if you're a consumer. But specifically, if I understand how the enforcement goes, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, um, I believe that, that whereas using the traditional patent office, you've got to go through all of these steps to get your patent approved, and then you have it with the, with the copy left approach, we're really trying to create a, a larger database for the U.S. Patent and Trade Office to look at before they give out their patent to a larger, you know, corporate IP entity. And so we're trying to we're we're trying to defend against these IP patents before they happen. Whereas, exactly. is, is if if you if you get your patent from the USPTO in the old version, yeah, you have to pay all this money up front and then you have to defend the patent but with creative commons type licenses you are um you are participating in the creation of this 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 database of different creative commons licenses which which um the patent and trade office will look at before even granting a a patent to a larger cannabis company is that is it i mean is that it in a snapshot yeah, that's uh, that's where, that's um, uh, you know to, to summarize it a little bit. It's uh, you know basically about a creating sort of a a genetic pool, a scope that's uh, not patentable, and 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 but that scope, uh, that genetic pool, we need to uh, make it visible uh, uh, to the USPTO in order for them to say, okay, all of this scope here of genetics, we we just can't issue patents on them, or anything that's derived from this pool of genetics can't be patented, and and that's where I think it's the most effective because once the patent has been granted, uh, um, it's 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 more difficult and and costly to reverse that. Yeah, yeah, as we're finding out now. Um, so, so how do, you know, it, by participating in a copy left, um, I don't know, pool, patent pool, yep. like you're talking about, um, why does that not cost the same amount as a traditional patent? Because don't you still have to do a long form read on the genome so that you can put it in the patent pool? I mean, how will the USPTO know what's in the common license patent pool if breeders don't um, if they if they don't read the genome and identify it in the pool? So, you know, ideally what you need to do, you know, I know that in Germany, the license, uh, the open source uh, breeding uh, license doesn't require a genetic testing, uh, uh, like a genetic test uh, to grant um, uh, to, for, 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 for the, uh, the plant uh, to be recognized as a new one. Uh, they look at the phenotypes 
and uh, the origins uh, uh, based on what the, the breeder has documented. As you know, I use this uh, plant and this other one uh, uh, to breed this one, and uh, they are trusted. But uh, in, in the US, I think, you know, the best, because um, it's, it's a, a bit more constraining from a legal uh, standpoint, I think the best approach is, you know, first to document the appearance of the phenotype, to have also the genetic testing, a, a chemotype uh, uh, a lab test as well, to have, you know, sort of a holistic uh, picture of what the plant is, how it looks, uh, its chemical composition, and its uh, genetic uh, um, uh, a legacy, if you wish. And uh, and if that is documented, and then you uh, um, release these genetics uh, with the, the full picture, the holistic picture under the open source license, I think it gives a, a, a complete enough picture for the USPTO to uh, reject a patent application on something that would be derived from that because you know the 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 the, the entity would apply for a patent a plant patent on uh, a, a cannabis plant uh, maybe they would supply a chemotype uh, lab test they would supply uh, the genetic uh, test as well and some photos to illustrate the phenotype so anything that would have been documented in the same way but released under an open source license would be out of scope for for patent eligibility if you if you want, and I think that's uh, and that's where you know again I mentioned OCP before Open Cannabis Project. I think you know what they are doing is interesting uh, because they play a role into documenting this prior art uh, for the USPTO. Wow, you know I'm I'm over here smiling because listening to your description of how in Germany they don't require a genetics read uh, no. to be able to defend against patents, and and you know if if. If we were to allow that here and all that you would need to do to be part of the uh, creative commons or the, or the, the cannabis commons uh, gene pool, if you will, license pool mm -hmm. would be to give, um, you know, basic cannabis lab analytics, what your genetic crosses were. And then a phenotypical description of the plant, how it looks and how it acts, that kind of flips the script because in, you know, in the present way patents work with plants, it is very much leaning towards um, restriction and, you know, expensive corporate lawyers because they can get so specific and kind of disco around whatever claims that you are trying to do to defend against the, the patent. Whereas this kind of patent pool is the flip, right? That almost seems like overbroad, but in the defense level, because there are so many, you know, there are so many people who have got um, chemovars that they've developed that have got all of these particular pheno typical expressions mm -hmm. that, um, you know, essentially everything that's on the market now would become safe. And I know that's our goal, right? It's, it's it, you know, I know I'm kind of saying the obvious, but I love the idea that, that that flips the onus of who's responsible, right? Instead of flipping it on on the the, you know, heritage growers of cannabis to fight corporate lawyers, at the specific level, it kind of allows uh, heritage farmers to defend this pool of phenotypical descriptions in saying, okay, you know, folks who want to grab all the IP, you have to prove that whatever you're doing 
is not already happening in our phenotypical pool. And that is a much, much harder standard. hundred percent, you know, I was about to say, and, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm, I even wonder myself, how come, you know, you could even consider releasing, you know, granting some patents on, on cannabis, given that, you know, an, ex, an identical genetic, depending on the environment, can give, you know, a, a completely different chemotype and even phenotypes. So, you know, the, the, it's so um, uh, blurry, it's so uh, um, moving that uh, how, how do, would you demonstrate that your plant is, is truly unique and is not in the public domain, uh, has not been in the public domain for years before? So that's, uh, so, you know, in some ways, sometimes I'm thinking that cannabis by its very nature is, is not even eligible for any patent because of, you know, it's, it's a very um, uh, changing nature depending on the environment. And uh, and it's it's a it's a multitude of uh, of uh, of uh, appearance uh, for for a same uh, 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 genotype basically. Yeah, well, I I love this interpretation of it. It it really puts it, it pushes the onus on the people who want to you know say they own the whole cake instead of those of us who are who are defending against it saying that there's enough cake for everybody so so alan let's let's get really specific because i know that there are some breeders listening who are all like okay okay i want to participate in the phenotypical license pool right how can you give us the actual steps that a breeder would take to participate in uh, this this cannabis uh, this open cannabis license and and get involved with the phenotypical pool like bring it down to basics how what are the steps that somebody who wants to participate what would they do okay so uh, first you know we um, uh, like I said you know we drafted a, 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 an open cannabis license um, and um, we shared it with as many uh, um, growers uh, alliances and associations uh, so they are nonprofits. In the states and in Canada, as we could, because you know, Strainly is in a is in a is not a non-profit; it's an incorporated company. And I think you know, as much as I want to move things forward, I don't believe we are the best entity to release such a license. There could be even a perceived conflict of interest, and uh, I wouldn't want Strainly to be perceived as you know a company that's trying to control. Uh, um, the licensing of cannabis genetics. And I think, you know, a more democratic approach to uh, what we're trying to accomplish is to rely more in a de- decentralized approach to rely on the uh, the, the, uh, the growers, associations and alliances because, you know, uh, they are non-profits, they represent their members, uh, they are more localized. You have su- such alliances or associations in different counties in Northern California, uh, in Oregon, etc. So they are closer to the people they represent. And, uh, you know, back to the... Uh, the necessity of localizing the license I mentioned before, I think it's all of that aligned well together, better than if it be, you know, a single uh, uh, incorporated entity releasing uh, this license. So this license has been sent uh, to, like I said, uh, many associations and alliances. And uh, uh, what I think, you know, breeders would be interested in, 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 in making it happen, uh, basically, I think what we, they should starting... Uh, uh, they should start doing is is contacting uh, uh, alliances, uh, associations they might be member of or consider being a member, and and ask the question. You know, uh, what are you guys uh, uh, doing for uh, uh, addressing this question and this pot- potential threat? And should we organize in into uh, releasing this license 
for our members and have uh, the open cannabis license for um, Mendocino County Growers Associations, for instance. And, uh, and that could be replicated in different regions. And when this license is, is released, uh, uh, then uh, for the, the members of the, the, the non-profit, uh, then it, I think it would be pretty easy for, for them to, to simply uh, use it. Uh, basically, what, what it takes is uh, uh, you release your, uh, your seeds and uh, you ideally get a test from a lab uh, to document uh, the, chemi the, the chemotype, uh, uh, chemotypic profile. Uh, genotypic profile as well. It's a little bit more costly, but I think it would be um, it would go a, a long way. And uh, take some photos, uh, document that, uh, and um, and then when you release your your seeds, uh, you can add what what the open source breeding license in Germany requires is that when you want to release your seeds, is you put a sticker with the logo and uh, an abstract uh, summarizing uh, what the license is with a, uh, a URL. Uh, on the label saying, you know, if you want to uh, get access to the full license, this is where it is. And this URL would, could be uh, uh, located on the, the website of the Growers Alliance that's re uh, releasing this, uh, this uh, license and that the breeder is member of. And, uh, and uh, then from, from that point, uh, uh, these seeds uh, would be officially released under open source license from uh, ABC Growers Alliance in uh, Northern California, Mendocino County, for instance. All right. So I got to admit, right off the top, I'm full of disappointment because I thought this this phenotype pool of, of common licenses already existed. Uh, I get what you're saying that um, uh, it makes sense for this to be rolled out locally um, all over the country, um, yeah. f uh, and, and for people to localize the license. But I really thought that, that you are going to tell me that there's already a pool that is coming together. And I'm really disappointed that there's not. So I guess there's two takeaways. Yeah. I think there's two takeaways from this. Number sure. one, um, anybody who feels fired up about, um, having an open cannabis license uh, to defend your chemovars from overbroad um, uh, patents, uh, and you're listening, you could be the person who initiates this in the United States because so far no one is doing it properly and this phenotype pool does not exist. So, so that's number one, a kind of a call to arms. If you are yep. into this, you can be the person that picks up you know, this, this process that Alan has started, uh, well, you know, a Alan has picked up the works of those before him in Germany and those before yep. him like Lawrence Lessig. So, you know, this is a, this is a, this is something that has evolved over, you know, at least the last 30 years. So, yep. so, so perhaps you can be the one that, that stands up for this in the United States. But also number two, Alan, is it possible for breeders in the United States to get licenses based on the open source seed initiative in Germany? Can, can folks here apply for protection in Germany? So they, they can, but uh, technically they can. You know, I spoke with Johannes, uh, the, the, the president of the, the non-profit there in Germany, and he said, yeah, you know, you can use it because uh, cannabis is legal in, uh, in Germany, by the way, uh, for medical purposes, and, uh, and they are open to the idea. The thing that uh, you need to consider is uh, in case you would have to defend uh, your open source license, you would have to go in front of a German court because the license is under German civil law. So meaning uh, phys meaning physically going there, not just not just sending in paperwork. 
I think it requires being there, yeah, physically uh, or having a representative there at least. And also, uh, you know, um, it's, it would require speaking German. So that's why you know, <laughs> the, need for, the need for localizing uh, the licenses is, is, is really important, I think. And I, I, I hear your disappointment and, uh, and I'm, I'm not surprised. Uh, the thing is, uh, it has to be, uh, I think, a collaborative effort. If you want to keep it democratic uh, and and uh, for the benefit of everyone, and it's um, it's a uh, it's a local effort, uh, the addition of local efforts, I think uh, that that are going to really change things. I'm not sure uh, that our community slash industry would really welcome someone. Imagine strangely coming and say, "Hey, you know, uh, uh, we're going to dictate a little bit how how it's going to happen." I think people would become very suspicious, probably with reason, uh, that one entity uh, would want to control the licensing of or have a strong influence on the licensing of of genetics. I think we, we should be careful about not defeating the purpose of the initial uh, initiative. And uh, so that's why I hope we, we, we can have some more localized initiatives that add up to uh, 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 result in, a, in an open source pool of genetics that's eventually accessible for everyone. And I would think that anybody who is, is really excited by this idea and might want to uh, become part of the phenotype pool in Germany, um, even though you may not ever go to Germany to defend your patent, um, you know, uh, usage is a big part of the patenting process, and it certainly wouldn't hurt for somebody in the U.S. to become part of the common license pool in Germany to show that that your um, your chemovar has existed. You know, to kind of give you a timestamp, right? So as the U.S. Exactly. as the U.S. pool comes into existence and then expands, you'll be like, yeah, all right, I'm in the U.S you know, my local open phenotype pool. But yeah, for three years, I've already been in the German pool. And so, and so your patent protections go back even farther. So, you know, it just depends on uh, how into this you are. So, you know, if somebody's really into this, yeah, go get part, go become part of the German pool and then help with the establishing of local phenotype pools in the U.S. But if you're all like, oh man, I don't even want to mess with Germany. Well, then just get involved with starting to create um, common licenses here in the United States so that we can... Um, you know, hopefully defend the plant from overbroad patents, but at the very least make it difficult as hell for corporate IP lawyers to, you know, subsume all of this work um, that that cannabis breeders are doing. Hmm. Agreed. Yep. All right. So, um, so okay. So, so we're to the point now that we we want this pool to be made, and we're looking for a nonprofit to to pick that up. That's that's all very interesting. So, I think let, let's let's wrap up this uh, the second set of the show now, and and we'll shift a little bit more to what. Uh, your business model is as founder of Strainly. Everything we've talked about so far is is kind of your philanthropic, 
you know, um, from your heart, the things that you see need to get done. But, but what your business is, is, is this fantastic, uh, platform for, uh, uh, cannabis enthusiasts to trade seeds back and forth. So, so let's go to our commercial, second commercial break. And when we come back, we'll talk, uh, in depth about Strainly, your product and how people are able to, um, participate. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Alan, founder at Strainly. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well-known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum, and that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results too. What I mean is, other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophylline to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True Terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose True Terpenes for a top-shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life, Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is Alan, the founder of Strainly. So here we are. Let's talk about what is at the at the base of all of this, which is um, your platform at strainly.io. So, you know, one of the things that you said earlier, Alan, which I find very interesting is you're like, listen, 
these these phenotypical pools uh, need to be done by other people that are not us at Strainly because you want it to be done by nonprofits so that there's no confusion between the Strainly for-profit business and the um, the amalgamation of all of these open licenses. And I think that we've seen some problems with that here in the U.S. with uh, Phylos Biosciences forming the galaxy and asking everybody to send them genetics when, you know, generally people were never really all that clear about what was ha- going to happen to those gen- genetics. And over time, uh, trust in that pro- project has has been degraded. And so mm-hmm. now in the United States, the Open Cannabis Project, which is a, a spinoff, of Phylos, but mm-hmm. it, but is not paid by Phylos and does not share any of the same officers. You know, uh, Open Cannabis Project, uh, headed by uh, uh, Beth Schechter, are trying to kind of reestablish. Um, you know, the, the nonprofit ideal of these open licenses and trying to give some new life to it. What you're suggesting, though, is that, you know, you're not, Strainly is not the people to do it. You are very clearly a for-profit company. And so you are encouraging people to, to pick up these, these, these common license pools and go for it. But what you actually do is help cannabis breeders who are producing seeds and pollen to connect with other cannabis enthusiasts who either want to grow those seeds or use pollen to make their own crosses. Um, why don't you go ahead and give us a little uh, snapshot, give us your, your elevator pitch and explain what Strainly is for po- people who may be interested. Yeah, so it's, uh, you, you, you summed it uh, pr- pretty uh, pretty accurately. So maybe I'm going to paraphrase a, a little bit, but uh, yeah, basically, you know, the idea behind Strangly, as you said, it's a it's a it's a for-profit uh, company. Doesn't mean that we don't have any uh, concerns about ethics. I think you know, it's it's fine to make money. It's uh, it's it's better if you make money in an ethical way and you respect the people who who, who do business with you and and you try to do good for for your community. But uh, yeah, uh, Strangly is not a non-profit. It's an incorporated company. And uh, the goal is, uh, with uh, Strenly, is really to um, empower breeders and growers to preserve uh, genetics. That's really the, 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 the vision. And, and how do we uh, want to do our part in empowering growers and breeders? Uh, it's, it's by connecting them, allowing them through technology, as we said earlier, through technology to, to connect people in a convenient and reliable and also safe way. It's, um, you know, we know there are all kinds of people in, in our industry and community, a very uh, awesome people and some more opportunistic people and some uh, straight scammers. And that's always been, uh, you know, kind of an issue, whether on forums, on Instagram, on whatever uh, uh, a platform uh, through which people connect. And so we wanted to bring something a little bit different, you know, with, with a spirit of, uh, you know, a community spirit, uh, um, uh, collaboration oriented, uh, where uh, the place is as safe as we can keep it, and uh, and uh, and you know it 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 helps breeders getting exposure, uh, uh, making revenue, uh, uh, building a reputation. Some of them don't need really to build a reputation; they already uh, had a, a, a good one before Strandly existed. And uh, but give a chance to everyone. You know, sometimes uh, it's hard for for uh, uh, talented breeders or, or growers. To get that exposure uh, to 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 people to uh, to other growers, and uh, so we don't we want to remove uh, all the barriers possible uh, uh, for those uh, up and coming and 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 also already well established 
uh, uh, breeders and nurseries uh, to, to connect. And uh, and so eventually, you know, at the end of the day, I think it uh, it, it helps in in uh, preserving biodiversity and making it accessible to the the, the, the most people possible. One of the things I really like about it is it's very much uh, like buyer direct, right? The way that um, American cannabis seeds tend to be distributed are either um, A, um, a lot of breeders will sell on websites if they can figure out how to uh, accept the money through a banking system that that will not cut them off, or B, mm-hmm. probably the most common, uh, being uh, seeds being sold at cannabis events through booths, um, mm-hmm. and and very often, um, you know, going through seed distributors adds something to the margin, and uh, very small new cannabis breeders they sometimes they don't have the money or the size to be able to you know start a brand get all the social media going um get a distributor at, at you know because a lot of these breeders they've got day jobs too you know this isn't their yeah. only thing they can't just quit everything and and suddenly go pro with with cannabis seeds but yeah. this the strainly platform allows anybody to to uh, join start a profile describe your seeds post some pictures and then start you know getting you know kudos from other people that have bought your seeds and increasing your your social trust and and you know Somebody who you know doesn't even have a brand yet can sell their seeds. Say, for example, they come across this very particular pheno that's fantastic, or it's got it's got ab- absurd CBD uh, potency numbers or something. But they're not the kind of person who's going to go and build an entire seed breeding empire. They can go to Strainly. And, you know, it kind of works like eBay in a lot of ways where, where you, you, you post and then anybody can approach you and then, and then uh, pick up a trade at that point. So I've got two questions of, about the actual functioning of the platform. Yes. No, number one, um, I read recently that there, there is some kind of uh, uh, inspection now that, that you guys are doing to, to help confirm that breeders are legit. So that's the first part of the question. And then, and then the second part of the question question is um, um, uh, how many people are participating at the at this point uh, because so certainly I'm you know as a as a as a member who's watching this I'm seeing seeds moving but from but from the uh, from my side of the screen I can't tell how much activity is actually taking place no and that's a, that's kind of a wanted a little bit too um, and uh, so yeah so the first part of the question yeah uh, uh, so a lot of the, the the vetting so you know it's it's a it's a fine line uh, to, to 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 walk uh, because you know we want to be like I said want to be as uh, open and accessible uh, uh, to anyone who wants to join and remove the barriers at the same time you don't want to open the doors to all kind of shady people opportunistic people and straight scammers so it's important to sort of uh, monitor. Uh, closely what's happening uh, and uh, you know through uh, thanks to our experience with other uh, uh, social uh, platforms and forums and also uh, 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 it's important to to, to stress, uh, stress on the last part the collaboration from some users uh, who are really community minded and want to keep the place safe 
and help us, you know, give us some hints sometimes about, you know, this guy I think is really suspicious or we know it very well from other platforms and, you know, he's, he's, he's going to create problems here, etc. So that's how we monitor very closely. Give a chance to everyone. But uh, if you if you're not here for the good reasons, you're not going to stay long. And, um, you know, uh, never shy to ban uh, something, uh, someone who's uh, who's who's uh, uh, really suspicious uh, or already scammed uh, someone. Uh, that said, it's uh, it's not very common. Uh, I can be, uh, and I'm going to uh, jump to the second part of the question, uh, where uh, we have over 7,000 members using Strainly now. It's, it grew uh, pretty quickly during the past couple of months. And uh, on those uh, 7,000 people, uh, after uh, two years, uh, you know, I did the stats last week and it's uh, less than 0.8% uh, uh, of people who created problems and we had to ban. So, you know, it's rather safe. It's, it's, uh, uh, they are problem makers, but uh, they are in a small number uh, and uh, they, don't, they don't stay very long. And then, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to disclose everything, but we have some mechanisms to uh, get an idea who's behind this email address or this profile, etc. Uh, to avoid uh, people to create duplicate accounts and 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 do the same type of uh, bad things again and again. Pro so <clears throat> probably the the no number one question you probably get from people because uh, it was my first question when I when I created account, which is how does money exchange hands right? Because you know I one of the things I like about how s the strainly approach is that. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of seeds are being sold, but also a lot of seeds are being traded for. So it, it, it there's not a default setting that you have to use money. People are trading seeds all the time, but yes. but 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 certainly people want to sell seeds and buy seeds who don't have seeds to trade for the seeds that they want. So uh, explain a little bit how money exchanges hands. How does how does the deal happen? Sure. So uh, you know. As you, uh, you you mentioned earlier, you know, sort of a eBay. I think you know we're not a really a, 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 a full-blown eBay type uh, uh, type of platform uh, in the way that we don't process the payments. We don't process the payments as an inter intermediary between the parties, between the buyer and the, uh, now people get in touch. They submit uh, basically a, a formal request. Uh, you know, you you are you are a grower. Uh, you are you are looking for some specific seeds. You would look uh, the search uh, function, uh, the different filters that are uh, kind of quite helpful, and uh, you would find you know uh, a pack of seeds that uh, you've been looking for for a while. And uh, you go onto uh, this uh, listing, and you have a request button. Uh, you click on this request button. You select the quantities. So it submits a formal request to the provider. Uh, the breeder or, or the collector uh, that is offering this pack and you had a, a nice message you know hey I'm interested in your pack and uh, how does that work would you ship to me etc and uh, and how do you accept payments and and then the, the provider has two options they, they've got two buttons they may click the green accept button or they may click the uh, red uh, reject button and so meaning they reject the request uh, because you're out of my country, I don't want to ship internationally, or I know who you are, and uh, maybe just because I don't want you to grow my genetics. You know, some breeders they may say, you know, that's their, that's their, uh, their control. We want to give the control to the breeders too. If if a breeder says I don't want these guys there, I know them to grow my genetics for any reason, they may reject the request as well. If they accept the request, then they coordinate together. 
what type of uh, payment methods they want to use. Uh, we kind of have no say uh, with this because we don't process the payments. Uh, though we recommend staying away from some payment methods because it puts uh, people at risk and it may end up uh, having your money frozen, your account frozen and your money uh, uh, going away. You will never see it again. So... It, you know, payments uh, are, are a complicated uh, topic in our industry. Uh, so this is why we leave it uh, to the users to uh, choose uh, whatever payment methods they feel the most comfortable with. And it may change from a transaction to another. So it was kind of a, a, a difficult to impose a single payment method. So that's the way the way it happens. At the end of, uh, of, the, of the trade or of the, the purchase, the transaction, um, so you can still communicate through the private message console and uh, at the end uh, you can leave a review and uh, positive or negative and say you know everything went well you know this guy is trustworthy and uh, feel free we'll do business again and uh, and so it, it, it helps with creating the needed trust and uh, and in uh, if necessary uh, uh, kicking out uh, the bad apples. So, so this begs the question, though, on the payment, right? Because anybody, yeah. <clears throat> anybody in cannabis who's been involved with seeds knows that transferring of money is the whole freaking deal, right? Yeah. Like, there's there's so many cannabis breeders that are are online and offline and online and offline as their different, um, you know, their different different uh, payment. Uh, mechanisms reckon, yep. fi figure out that they're cannabis and then kill their account. Yep. And um, so, so what are some of the successful payment methods that you are seeing people use that aren't getting shut down instantly? So, you know, um, the, 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 the first one that comes to mind uh, that you can't really get shut down is uh, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoins, you know, Litecoins, whatever. And uh, when once I said that, you know, I'm, I'm aware that uh, very few people actually use it. Uh, back a year and a half ago, we were really considering integrating a payment system with Strainly. And we said, you know, we can't take the risk on behalf of our users to, you know, integrate a payment system that's going to get their account shut down and, 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 and lose their money. We just can't make that decision on their behalf. So, uh, so we said, you know, we've got to come up with something that for sure will work and not cause any problem. And, you know, when you investigate, you quickly realize that uh, cryptocurrencies are really the way to go. But then we did the survey and like less than 2% of respondents, a couple hundreds, uh, said they would be willing to use cryptocurrencies. Uh, so we said, okay, so, you know, it's going to add some friction because we're going to force people to use a payment system that they don't really want to use. The majority of them, they don't want to bother with that. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, at the moment then you have, you know, money orders. Um, some people will meet in person. I think, you know, it's, uh, we, we, we should uh, not forget that also, you know, technology connects people that are living far away from each other. Some people, you know, uh, uh, they may be uh, residing in the same area. And uh, frankly, you know, if they can meet and, 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 and connect on a different level in person, that's, that's even better. Yeah, that's, that's always great. the best, you know, create more community. Yeah. And um, and eventually, you know, um, but, you know, that once I, I said that, so I don't have the pe perfect answer. Uh, it's it's mostly due to uh, regulations in the U.S. You know, most of the payment processors, PayPal, Stripe and everything, they are backed by U.S. banks that are regulated by the federal regulators, the SEC and so on. 
And so these guys, they, the PayPal and Stripe and, and all these guys, they don't want to process payments for our industry. Um, so that said, you know, we're still working, investigating, trying to find some payment processors uh, that we would feel comfortable uh, in integrating. Uh, but it's 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 really hard. Just for the reason that I said, we we it's not only about us. It's it's about you know everyone that's using Strandme, and we just can't force people in using something that's putting them at risk. Even if the risk is five percent, it's still too much. So um, so it's it's still a challenge. I'm hopeful we're going to find a solution in 2019. We have some upgrades coming. Uh, still working on 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 ways uh, for processing payments, but uh, you know it's not a it's not a one provider with many clients. It's 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 a P2P, right? You have many to many people, so uh, m many providers to many uh, many requesters. So that adds to the complexity of integrating a payment system. Sure. So <clears throat> it sounds to me like as far as the payments go, uh, number one, you're in the same boat as the rest of us, and yeah. you need the banking for cannabis to be. Uh, smoothed out as well. So, so that's number one. We're all in the same boat. But number two, for breeders and for purchasers of cannabis seeds, if you are willing to, you know, create yourself a, a Bitcoin wallet and and buy some Bitcoin and have it in your wallet, if you are willing to learn that much extra step of the technology, this opens up this vast new door for you to either buy exotic seeds that are at incredibly reasonable prices most of the time that I've seen on Strainly. And if you are a breeder and you're willing <clears throat> to create a Bitcoin wallet, uh, it, it, it creates an avenue for you to accept uh, Bitcoin that you can then, you know, use to pay for other things or cash out down the line. Um, and then, and then the third option would be just simply sending money orders or, or checks, which especially money orders, there's a certain amount of trust involved with that because you're essentially sending cash. But the Strainly platform is trying to make that more, um, more safe by having, uh, a, a, a customer feedback section and a, and a very vibrant community that if, that if some seller starts taking advantage of people and not shipping out, that's going to become apparent right away and they're going to get shut down. So, so if you're a buyer and you're using money order, yeah, it takes some trust, but you know, no more trust than we in heritage cannabis are used to doing with each other already. Yeah, agreed. And, uh, you know, even um, I, I would add uh, simply that before shutting down someone who's trying to take advantage from someone else, we will chase them <laughs> pretty hard. <laughs> so, and, 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 and most of the time, you know, even surprisingly, sometimes it works pretty well. You know, so they, they realize, you know, you're after them and it's not so easy to go to get away with it. And they're like, OK, you know, and um, sometimes you, you, you're not su successful. But like I said, less than one percent of the time. Uh, we had to ban people for being scammers, and and some people are are pretty smart, but uh, we we are not too bad at outsmarting them. So. <laughs> I I know I know Strainly is a popular platform in Canada in the and in the U.S. Um, are you very active in any other countries? Uh, so it's an interesting question. You know, yeah, there are some uh, some uh, countries now legalizing outside of North America, and uh, yeah, you know, you you would think of the Netherlands, you would think of Spain, and yeah, we have a, a few members in Germany as well, Netherlands, Spain. Uh, we're not putting too much um, uh, focus on, on on developing these regions because you know people would tend to 
ship across border, do a lot of international transactions, and and whether we like it or not, you know, I'm not going to give my opinion on the regulations. I think you know we should all have access to you know diversity of of seeds, etc. But uh, at the same time. It, it would not be super responsible to encourage uh, uh, people to ship internationally because the risk is mostly on them, right? So, you know, uh, that's why we say let's try to uh, uh, grow uh, within the U.S., within Canada, and uh, and and then then we'll see, you know, in the future as as it as it, as it gets uh, more open uh, from a legal uh, standpoint in in Europe. Uh, the, I'm, I'm confident the, the, the community would grow there, but we're not putting too much focus on, on Europe at the moment. Right on. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about your motivations. Obviously, during the first two sets, um, you know, you're very passionate about uh, defending cannabis and cannabis breeders from from patents from uh, from folks that have shown up during the green rush. Um, but you're also a for profit company. So where does Strainly make its money? So, yeah, so uh, Stranding makes its money uh, from, uh, you know, we have a, a little bit like a LinkedIn, uh, uh, the professional social uh, media network. Uh, you, you can create a LinkedIn account for free and then you can upgrade to a premium account or, or, or different kinds of account that you would pay for for additional features, services. And Stranding works a little bit the same. It's completely free to create an account with most of of the features uh, being uh, available for free. And, and then if you want to have some, you, you're a breeder uh, or a nursery and you want some increased exposure, you want to be featured in the weekly newsletter or you want to be bumped at the top of the list once a week, etc. cetera, um, you can subscribe for a premium account uh, and uh, we have different tiers. And, uh, and so that's how we monetize a little bit. And uh, the other way to monetize is through advertising. Uh, and uh, and uh, that's uh, advertising for equipment manufacturers or retailers uh, because they would you know uh, uh, connect with their direct audience um, and so they find value in it. So that's the way we we uh, we we monetize at the moment. There are different things we're trying to explore to be viable because uh, quite frankly uh, at the moment uh, uh, we're not making enough money to pay uh, staff. Uh, um, uh, decently, and uh, so it's a lot of uh, a lot of effort uh, from passionate people, uh, mainly. But uh, yeah, hopefully, you know, if we're successful, we'll be able to to make a living uh, uh, in, with with es- you know in an ethical way, and uh, by creating tr- real value for for breeders and and uh, and uh, and uh, growers. You know, you ask me what are the motivations is, yeah, m- making, a, making a living and being able to sustain, strain me and, and leave from our patient, uh, uh, passion and at the same time, allowing, contributing to a vibrant uh, uh, cannabis uh, uh, community of growers. And, I'm, you know, I'm a big believer of uh, uh, small growers in rural areas. I think, you know, the legalization of, of cannabis should benefit rural areas as well. And uh, and uh, you know permaculture, uh, uh, responsible farming uh, techniques, and um, and so I think you know the small producers are more uh, inclined to uh, grow responsibly, and uh, and so it starts with empowering them with with platforms like Strandly, but many other uh, um, many other uh, uh, mechanisms, platforms, associations will help them as well. And I'm thinking of the appellations of origins and all these things. I'm a big believer of this. 
You know, um, a lot of what I what I do is uh, reviewing uh, business models and business plans for folks in cannabis. And I got to tell you, it's very refreshing to come across a business model that is based on um, more genetics, more people making them and more people trading them instead of the opposite where so many people are trying to lock down parts of the industry so that they control it. Essentially, you know, I, I, I understand more clearly now why you are so big into um, you know, the, the open cannabis licenses, because essentially you are defending and trying to make more of your customers in the best way, right? You're, you're, tr you know, if, if the people that you are supporting to move their seeds around are collectors and breeders and, and you are, your revenue comes from people on your platform who are collectors and breeders who want to share more, you are essentially pushing this agenda forward to to defend all of them uh, so that they are around to use your marketplace. And I like that, yep. right? That's like that's like the best form of free market business where where your ideals are in line with those of the you know of the citizens of your buyers. So you're not limiting your their options. You're expanding their options, and that's that's why I reached out to you, and I wanted to talk today because you know it's 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 rare for somebody to uh, de defend cannabis folks and want to increase the competition. At the same time, you're willing to you know uh, get into all of the legalese and kind of sort out a lot of this um, cannabis license uh, uh, patenting license stuff that that the common breeder doesn't have the time for. So, so, uh, you know, bully to you, right. You know, uh, for strainly for going, going this path and, and hopefully it works out. Uh, that's a, a, a very accurate and, uh, and, um, um, yeah, I, I like the summary you made and, uh, it's, it's, it's just the way we think. And, uh, yeah, there are nothing bad with, uh, with making money as long as you do it in a responsible way and, and you empower people. I think it's, uh, it's the way it should be. And you mentioned the word, uh, you use the word citizen. And as a citizen, you know, I think uh, I would feel a lot better with uh, a vibrant uh, uh, cannabis industry composed of many producers who do things in a responsible way than controlled by a handful of large corporations that come to being Canadian to Ottawa or to, uh, to Quebec City, where we have the, the, the province uh, parliament to lobby our decision makers, the way tobacco companies did, right? And, uh, you know, as a citizen too, I think, you know, uh, we need to be uh, mindful about where the industry is going and, and that we, we don't give too much power to too few people. Fantastic. Well, Alan, thank you so much for being on the show. I thank appreciate you. your time and you sharing of your expertise. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much, Rango. I really appreciated the time here with you. And uh, yeah, uh, keep up the good work too. Uh, Right on. So if you want to get in contact with Alan himself or uh, participate in their new, uh, or not new, it's been around for two years now, but but new to us, Strainly platform, uh, you can go ahead and uh, go to www.strainly.io. So it's .io instead of .com. Um, while you're there, uh, be sure to check out their blog because uh, their three-part treatise on breeders' rights and the preservation of cannabis cultivars is really interesting and will uh, will, will help get you revved up for your for your future as a uh, cannabis uh, seeds trader on strainly.io
You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.